Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, this is J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions. Today, my guest is Jim Gibbons, who I met in business school. Jim is the CEO of Immutrix Therapeutics, a biotech firm focused on blood filtering that has applications in both human and animal health. Jim is also the founder and president of Forward Impact Enterprises, a company he formed in late 2020 to develop a mobile app designed to gather and share immediate feedback from group settings. Prior to his current work, Jim was the president and CEO of Goodwill Industries. And prior to joining Goodwill, Jim was president and CEO for the National Industries for the Blind. Before that, he held a number of roles at AT AT&T, including being president and CEO for campus-wide access solutions at AT AT&T. Jim is also notable for being the first fully blind individual to graduate from Harvard Business School after gradually having lost his sight as a child into early adulthood. Outside of his nonprofit leadership at Goodwill and the National Industries for the Blind, Jim's volunteer work has included board and advisory roles with Independent Sector, Charity Defense Council, Leadership 18, ACT, and Credential Engine. In addition to earning his MBA from Harvard, Jim earned his bachelor's degree in industrial engineering from Purdue University. He and his wife, Tammy, live in Indiana and are the parents of three adult children. Jim, welcome. It's great to have you today. Good to be with you, Jared. You lost your sight in the later years of your childhood. How did that affect you know, the teenage years and decision and thinking about where to go to school and what you were going to major in and, and all of that. You know, I uh, started losing my vision in probably third grade and I was totally blind by the time I was a junior at Purdue. But probably my greatest influence on what to study and where to go was my father and my brother and my brother-in-law. And they were all engineers. So I felt like uh, engineering was a good path pathway for me. I was always pretty good in math and science and seemed like a a career path where you could get gainful employment. So that influence was pretty heavy on me. And then Purdue was a great school that was just north of Indianapolis where I grew up. So I applied to a couple of other schools thinking like any young person, oh, pre-law or this or that or whatever. But engineering was probably had the greatest draw for me at those ages. So. Yeah, I actually Purdue is one of the schools I applied to. I never got out there to visit it, though. Oh man, you would have come if you came out to visit us. So. Probably. What options did you consider following school? I know you ended up at AT and T, but what else were you thinking about? Well, you know, it was an interesting process. So I had pretty good grades, but I had a tough time finding that first opportunity. I interviewed probably fifty times with on-campus interviews, and I got about fifty ding letters. We call them ding letters at Purdue. And it wasn't until close to graduation that I finally got a job offer. I got two, one with AT&T and one with IBM. But I was really having a tough time selling the blind engineer when I was competing against everybody kind of one-on-one in the stack of 200 resumes that would go back to the plant or the operation. But AT&T and IBM both uh, 
great processes with them. And either right before or right after graduation was when I got my first offer. And I ended up going with AT&T out of Cincinnati, Ohio, partially because of the geography. But in both cases, I really liked the managers that were offering positions. And the one in uh, with IBM had my first two years of my career planned out for me, which was, you know, for a 21-year-old was pretty exciting. But I ended up probably weighing the, the opportunity in Cincinnati a little higher. Do you feel like back then, granted, this is back in the mid-1980s, how did people, you know, deal with your blindness? So you made the point about, you know, being a blind engineer, applying against all these other kids coming out of school who had vision and full sight. And how do you feel like that process went? You know, with one of the uh, interviews I had with actually with a different division of IBM, I had a what I thought was a great plant visit. And I spent the day talking about robotics and programming and automation. And in my final interview, a guy said, well, how do you dial a phone? And I thought, oh, boy, I'm not going to get this job. So <laughs> it definitely became uh, it definitely was a barrier to overcome trying to get somebody to take themselves out of the position of what it would be like to be blind and just let the person they're interviewing with tell them how they would handle it. Probably two of the greatest mentors I had uh, at AT&T, you know, they just took it on directly in the interview process. I, these were former bosses and they asked direct questions about the blindness. And I always found those were the best, the best people to uh, work for because they didn't, they just asked and, yeah. you know, accepted the answer. One guy actually told me, so how would you do this, this, and this? And I said, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. And he said, that was the reason he hired me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to deal with it, right? I mean, obviously it's a, you know, a topic you have to work through in terms of the how. It's good that you found people at AT&T who were comfortable having that conversation with you and, and helping you figure out the how. Right. Yeah. No, it was a great company to work with. So. You had a bunch of different roles there. I know you worked in network operations and product planning and M&A and competitive strategy. Was it a formal rotational program or did it just end up working out that way for you? No, I did not hire in into a leadership development program, but I, over time, garnered mentors within AT&T, the different functional areas. I kind of created my own path, hitting the different functional areas based on mentors, advice, and whatnot. Though it wasn't a formal program, I kind of hit the same different rotations that somebody might do just more at my own pace. And when did you decide that you wanted to go to business school? Oh, gosh. My wife, Tammy, and I were probably on the kind of a, at a point of, oh, when do we want to start a family? And so I was doing the debate between quitting to go to school or, or uh, going to night school. And night school looked awful hard to try to balance work and everything else and, and school. And so I thought, well, if I could get into a school like Harvard Business School, then maybe I'll just do that full time. And I applied. I actually applied once and didn't get in. And then two years later, I reapplied and got it. I still remember that night, you know, when I got the uh, acceptance letter and Tammy and I went out to dinner to celebrate, you know, we had the windows down going, woohoo, <laughs> you know, because it was a pretty big deal for this kid out of Indiana to find his way to Harvard Business School. So we were pretty excited. Yeah, it's a great accomplishment to get into any of the top business schools. And, you know, you had the notoriety of being the first blind student to attend HBS, right? Yeah, yeah. But there's been a number since I was there. So that's really good news. Yeah, you were a trailblazer. You proved it could be done. <laughs> right. I hope. You did. Well, you graduated, right? Yeah, I did. So I guess I did. 
How did the school support you in developing a learning approach that would work for you? The school was, I thought, amazing. You know, the case study methodology, none of the cases would have been recorded at that point. And it was just before the time that everything was electronic. Right. Everybody had a laptop. It was probably on the early days of every business school student having a laptop. But they worked with an organization and had every one of my cases recorded. And so I did every case with a recording. And then I would use a scanner to scan in things that they couldn't get recorded in time or handouts or books that the, were on the list at the beginning of the, the semester. And uh, so a combination of electronic means and scanning and cassette recordings. That the shame of that was probably I was two years away from where I could have been the student where they modified their approach and made everything electronic for me that would have benefited everybody. Yeah. And that's always a good thing if if the technology for accessibility paves the way for everybody else. But I just missed that window a little bit. The technology was just not quite ready yet. So they yeah. did a great job with that. And then I also had uh, personal readers that they helped with. So for anything that I couldn't get through electronic means or recorded means, uh, I had personal readers who would, would help out. Yeah, and you had an amazing ability. Everybody in school was always impressed with your ability to recall some number and some table and some exhibit on such and such page of the case that we were talking about that day. Your son has said, Thomas said that there was a little bit of circus theatrics to that. Is that true? Or did you really remember all of these numbers in those tables? I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, <laughs> he, he said but, you would pick one number and you would use that in your point. Uh, so that you, you I, hear I, I certainly didn't memorize every chart and every number, but I tried to use what I could recall in the course of the conversation. Probably the most theatrics that I used was, you know, I'm not a really good Braille reader, and I tried to learn Braille as I was going into business school to be better with Braille. So I would try to take notes in Braille, and then I would bring notes to class in Braille. Mm -hmm. But I could never read them effectively to use them in the class. It probably helped to Braille out notes and to take notes, but the theatrics was trying to read the Braille, but I really wasn't comprehending it. I had to really go off what I studied and had learned. But it was more trying to use what I could recall because, you know, those notes weren't as useful as I would have wanted them to be. Yeah, well, you were just amazing. You know, it was an incredible thing to watch you go through school and keep up with all of us who have our vision and graduate right alongside of us. We were all as section mates in, in particular, really, really proud for you that day. <laughs> it was a great experience. Was going back to AT&T after school preordained or did you think about other options? I did think about other options, but just like undergraduate, I interviewed with uh, on-campus companies and had some of the same challenges, even though at that time I had a lot of experience and now I had this Harvard MBA. Right. But I did have a lot of the same questions. In fact, uh, one guy from a company who was the recruiter on campus I ran into years later and he apologized uh, to me. He said, he goes, man, I am so sorry. He said, you know, I really thought you'd be great for our company, but the folks at whatever division right. just didn't, could do it because you were blind, you know? And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, thanks for the apology. But I did have, you know, I went to HBS on a program with AT&T where they supported part of it. And, you know, I had an opportunity kind of guaranteed if I came back and so on and so forth. So, it wasn't preordained, 
but it was highly likely. Yeah. And I went back into kind of an inside investment bank, a mergers and acquisitions group, which was a good experience for me. So you eventually, before you left AT&T, became president and CEO of Campus-Wide Access Solutions. Tell our listeners a little bit about that business. It was a great company. It was a company that AT&T bought that was a systems integrator, a software developer and a systems integrator for the campus card. So the campus ID card. And it had mag strip technology that would allow a student to buy things from a vending machine or downtown at the pizza shop or the library, the parking lot. And AT&T's vision was to card the back of the card with an AT&T calling card. And it was a pretty good idea, except for the timing was probably just a little too late. So it came right about the time that cell phones started to become ubiquitous. And so the calling cards kind of lost their way. So probably wasn't a great acquisition for AT&T, but it was a great opportunity for me to go run an end-to-end company at the stage of my career that I was at. Because really, most of AT&T revolved around this big network. Right. And this was a smaller $12 million subsidiary uh, that had software development, systems integration, hardware manufacturing, sales marketing, its own P&L. And so it was a really great opportunity for me to go actually run a company at a relatively young age. And so for me, it was great. And then that led to me moving on to other CEO opportunities uh, within the social enterprise space. Yeah. Before we get to that, I mean, when you think back on your time at AT&T, you mentioned some good mentors along the way. What, what did you take away from your time there that you've carried with you in your career since then? Oh, I think probably the, the key, the three key things I learned at AT&T is mentorship is really important. It really did have, a, I thought, a pretty good mentoring culture, although I did actually get a lot of how to build a mentor tips from people outside of AT&T. I didn't even actually know what the word meant you know, my young ages and, and uh, really learned how to build mentors and I guess create an environment for people to want to advise and advocate for you. So the mentoring was probably one big lesson. The, the other one was I learned how to lead through influence without authority in a product planning and quality management position where it seems like every team I led were higher level people and I had no direct authority over them. Hmm. So all cross-functional, and I really learned that, you know, you have to communicate, set expectations, listen, and that's how you lead with influence versus, you know, top-down authority. And I found that even in top-down situations, those same attributes are pretty important. And then I think I learned a lot about technology application without being a real techie person. You know, I've always had a pretty good grasp on how technology can be used to improve productivity in a work environment. And I think that came from my experiences at AT AT&T. It's good. And, you know, certainly the tech background, I mean, you can use that pretty much in anything you're doing these days, right? Even back in 2001, I think, is when you were were transitioning out of AT&T, if I remember right. Even back then, I mean, you were in the sort of the peak of the dot-com boom, you know, back then. Right. Yeah. And I think you almost have to nowadays have a good sense of the technology and how it can play into your organization and your work life. Yeah, absolutely. How did uh, you end up over at National Industries for the Blind? I got a call from a headhunter. I had never heard of NIB at the time, but he described it as an organization that's focus was 
creating job opportunities for people who are blind by getting federal contracts through a business development process. And so my job was, was going to be heavily on the business development side. And I thought, wow, that sounds pretty interesting because I'd always thought, well, maybe when I'm older, I'll do something for people who are blind by being on the board of an organization or those kind of things. Right. At that stage in my life, gave me an opportunity to be a direct impact player by doing things that I really enjoyed in terms of kind of business with impact. And so I threw my hat in that ring and lo and behold, we ended up in Washington, D.C. And did you start there as CEO or did you work your way up to that? No, I started as CEO, but NIB as an entity is a networked organization. Hmm. So the real operations are through its, I don't know how many they have now, but it's affiliated agencies. Uh, we had about 80 when I was there and they had all the manufacturing or the service capabilities. So we did all the brand management, business development, contract administration, and then we would allocate the contracts throughout that network of, uh, organizations based on capability and job creation. So it was really a business development job, but with a lot of other leadership and administrative roles. So basically all these 80 entities operated somewhat like their own independent operators, yeah. right? And you were just allocating business to right. them based on what you would win. Well, we could win through the government. And they all had their own boards of directors. So when it came to the contract work, I was the leader, but not the boss. That's where some of that uh, AT&T experience of learning how to you know, lead through influence, influence versus direct authority came in handy throughout my career. Yeah, I can imagine. What kinds of products were the different groups making? What did you offer? Uh, we had a whole office product line under the Skillcraft brand, and we did a major effort in terms of rebranding and revitalizing a brand that was really a brown cardboard government box into a vibrant brand and an office supply solution set. We had a strong textile capability throughout many of the organizations. We did a lot of service contracting, leveraging technology to enable people who are blind to work, whether it was in call centers or in warehousing distributions, picking, packing, et cetera. So it was a wide array of capabilities. And when you took over the organization, the parent organization, what was your assessment of what they needed? Oh, I think the go down, it was really about the brand and really making a pivot to being customer oriented. And then in terms of revitalizing the brand so that it was something that the customers wanted versus maybe felt required to utilize. Yeah. So I think that was probably the big shift is shifting from a more of a complacent, semi-governmental kind of mindset to a more of a competitive mindset, recognizing a bit of a need for speed and the ability to anticipate customers' needs and also react to customer demands. What did you end up doing to make that happen? Oh, I think uh, one of the big initiatives was uh, a lot of work on the brand. So from a major effort on repackaging all of the product lines, that was a pretty big undertaking. I think the other big area that I hopefully contributed to was the mission of NIB was really focused on the employment of people who are blind in the workforce as direct labor. But what I think was an important element of what I brought to the table was shifting the mindset for blind people to kind of grow into the management ranks. And we launched a leadership development program that had a partnership with the University of Virginia, business management training component, 
to uh, really move people into the management paths. And, you know, I know a number of those folks that were in the early days of that program were now CEOs of those agencies throughout that network. So I think that was another big element that I'm, I was always excited to be a part of. You were at that point, 15, 20 years post-college. Do you feel like over the course of that 15 to 20 years that you saw a lot of change in willingness to put blind people into roles that maybe they wouldn't have been uh, considered for in the past? It's certainly technology has been an incredible enabler for people with many types of disabilities, but did the societal views change in those first 15, 20 years from your view? It's hard to tell if, you know, what the time frame. I do think over time the views have been changing to the positive, but there's still a lot of work to do. You know, I think, you know, every time you have an opportunity for a person who's blind or has another disability to, to go demonstrate what they can bring to the party and demonstrate that to other folks and to organization, it helps move it all, move that needle just a little bit further. But there's still plenty of work to do. There's still a, a high unemployment for people who are blind and who, who have other disabilities. So there's still a big nut to crack there. Yeah. And technology mm-hmm. is, is a big component to it all. How so? Yeah, especially for people who are blind because it's an information economy. So the access technology gives you, as a blind person, the opportunity to, to gain some equal footing on garnering that information to be a part of the workforce and, and or the decision process or the productivity process. So that's access to that information, access in a way that you can be productive with it. Yeah, definitely. I still think with everything, it's like you've, there's undeniably sort of the hurdles that you have to overcome, you know, with irrespective of disability type. It's, it's just, it takes, I wonder whether when it will become an even playing field. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't, I don't know when that happens, but a lot of the responsibility is also on the person themselves. True. Yeah. To uh, open your mind to how you might do things differently. And, you have to develop in the blindness case, you have to develop the skills of mobility and the access technology skills. And on top of that, you've got to make sure that you've got the interpersonal skills and overcome the challenges that come with being blind. Even today, to this day for me, I sometimes feel like, oh man, I could have done so much more for myself. But it's you know, the Braille example from earlier, you know, I, the way I lost my vision, I started using technology and nowadays technology is much easier. So the use of Braille is less now than it was 50 years ago. And I think Braille is probably a skill that I wish I had had better skills with for the note-taking. Because even with technology, right, if I have my notes even handy-dandy on a little notepad on my phone, if you're in a meeting, you know, I can't really listen to that and engage with you. So I'm still using my memory. Right. Where it was in Braille, I could be glancing at notes a little easier. I mean, there are ways to do it, and I can do that with an earphone, and I can look things up. But when I'm doing that, I'm kind of disengaging from a discussion while I'm trying to go find a little piece of information. So I try not to do that. So there are a lot of things that I think I could have done better, and part of it was accepting the blindness. But you went through a particularly hard transition, right? I mean, relative to somebody who's blind from birth, you know, to have it sort of gradually occur for you over the course of your childhood... Yeah, I don't know if it would be harder or not harder than somebody who's blind from birth. I'm certainly different things to overcome, but I definitely had a, took a while to kind of accept it. And even through different stages of my life, let it bother me for different reasons. You know, uh, I feel like 
my wife carried the burden of raising of our kids. You know, I wasn't, you know, when, when you have kids, it's a lot of shuttling the kids around and I was not very value added in certain stages. And, you know, that was, I've always felt like that was a, a little bit hard. <laughs> so yeah, Tammy certainly has gone to extra lengths over the course of, you know, the time that you've known her in your marriage. Yeah. She's a good egg. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. Coming back to NIB, that was really your first foray into the nonprofit world. How did how did the nonprofit world differ in your view from your time working for AT&T? You know what I noticed about NIB and for that matter Goodwill was a lot of leaders would come in and they'd come from the for-profit space and they'd act like they came from a better managed space and that that wasn't my observations. There were certainly agencies that were less well-managed and had more of a not-for-profit mindset. But I really entered into the social enterprise space of the not-for-profit world. And the ones that did the best had the business disciplines. And they were I put them against anybody out there from a business management, a business leadership perspective. So probably what I learned the most is the value of those business skills in any organization, because they really do follow that they're really commonsensical and they're about follow through and commitment, and laying out a plan. And a lot of not-for-profits have to raise the money and then go spend it. You know, social enterprise organizations like I've been a part of, you know, really would lay out a plan and then execute against the plan because they had a revenue model that drove their ability to deliver mission. So I've always been attracted to that social enterprise component of the not-for-profit space. Yeah, there is a bit of mythology or misunderstanding of nonprofits that People who haven't really spent a lot of time inside a nonprofit seem to have, you know, your sense, like you said earlier, that, you know, the pace is slower, that they aren't as well run. But if you think about it, a lot of these nonprofits are trying to do really hard things. And on top of that, you know, and you know this as well as anybody, when you're running one of those companies, you have to go out and ask for money all the time. Like a huge part of what you're trying to do in most nonprofits is fundraising. And for-profit CEOs have to help in sales, but it's not the same as just asking for a check, you know, with not necessarily anything in return, directly at least. And that's just a very different proposition on top of the fact that, as I said, some of these are really complicated businesses. Yeah. And that's where organizations like National Industries of the Blind that had a revenue model or goodwill, they had both the hardship of building all those disciplines, but then the benefit of having a model that supported and funded their mission delivery. Now, those organizations also did fundraising, but I found the one, this is probably a broad statement, but the ones who were the best at fundraising were probably not as good at the business side. And the ones that were the business side were probably not, they probably got better at fundraising, but they built their sustainability on the social enterprise element. That's not a scientific answer. That's just a broad observation. What do you feel like you were able to accomplish overall in the 10 years that you were there? Well, I think, you know, I was part of a good team that built a momentum of growth. I think the leadership development component was really important. And I think the work on the brand were probably the three big areas, growth, brand, and and leadership. What then led to your transition over to Goodwill? Oh, I think that you know, 10 years is a long time in these organizations and Goodwill. I went through an interview process with them and I didn't know Goodwill very well at that time, uh, but they had a similar mission, but served a broader population. I had a brand, was pretty recognizable and had 
a bit of an international component, but all of those were very exciting and interesting. And it was a little bit of a larger organization. So when I got that opportunity, I was excited to take it and be a part of that team for 10 more years. Yeah. So where were they when you took over and what were your early priorities? They were a pretty steady organization when I got there. It's a federated model and as a strong, and when I say federated, it means that each, each organization is an independent organization. So it was definitely how to serve the network of goodwills while advancing the brand. So I think we did a lot of really great brand work, strategic partnerships, and really listened to the network. There's a lot of times, you know, the national players can not listen to the locals. I found that listening to the local leadership was extraordinary and trying to feedback what you heard was really important. And when, when I, you know, the times that I was successful at hearing feeding back, we moved forward. At the times that I, I became tone deaf, which happens or goes in and out, then you had more internal challenges. I tried to keep my finger on the pulse of the network and tried to lead through listening and then hopefully adding value to what I was hearing from the network. Because the mission really is local. It's what happens on the ground. So you got to give a lot of respect to the local organization because that's where the world work gets done. Absolutely. And it's, I think, look, I mean, in different forms, you ran two organizations that had, in the case of NIB, the affiliate construct and the, in the case of Goodwill, you know, the independent organizations. So not that different uh, in the scheme of things, I guess. And the dynamics between those local organizations and the national organization, they're always an extra challenge relative to everything else that you have to deal with. I saw that when I was doing some work with the United Way back in, I don't know, probably 20 years ago. Yeah, it can be a challenge. And that's where I found, again, that lesson of leading through influence versus position was pretty useful. It it really is about a servant leadership mindset. But I, you know, even in talking with CEOs of large Fortune 50 companies, you know, at the end of the day, you know, nobody tries to lead with an iron fist nowadays. It really is about getting the best out of everybody on the team. It's pretty important. Problem in in these network models or federated models is occasionally when you have to all come together to move the ball forward, it can be a little bit more difficult. Yeah, because everybody's got their independence, right? Uh-huh. Their own idea of what that means to move everything forward. So, so you spent twenty years in DC. You got to do some interesting other things along the way while you were living there as well, right? Yeah, I mean, it was a good environment. You know, we got involved with various groups and organizations, but I got to serve on a number of board of directors and be involved with a lot of organizations there in the area. So, and it was also kind of the time that raising our family. So they were old, just born and up through five when we moved there. So, and then moved out of DC when the last, the youngest was 19. (laughs) So, or I guess he was 20. Yeah. So for all practical purposes, that's where your kids grew up. Yeah. So you and Tammy moved back to Indiana when you left Goodwill. Were you clear at that point that you wanted to dive into something new or were you intent on taking a break? I was definitely clear that I I wanted to try my hand at building something and really being more project work oriented. And I wanted to see if I could do something from kind of the ground up. And so that's where I started working on this technology platform, which I'm Forward Insight. 
it's really a feedback and a coaching platform where it's peer to peer driven and a lot and allows for team members to give confidential feedback on a positive construct to each other so that you have a sense of what people are, you know, how you're doing as a contributor to the team. So uh, that's taken a lot more time than I would have thought. And it's still a pre-revenue business, but finally I have a minimally viable product uh, in the, in the app stores. And now I got to actually continue to work with it from a marketing perspective and an ongoing development perspective, but it's taken a lot more than, than I thought to get it to that stage. And an entrepreneur is tough. So, and in the middle of it, I was on the board of directors of Mutrix and I've stepped in as the, to help them commercialize. So that's taken a lot of my time this last six months. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about that and how that's unfolded and what you're trying to do to help them in particular. Well, it's a, it's an amazing early stage biotech company. It's been around for a number of years, but mostly the R and D side. And so now it's trying to pivot from R and D to commercialization. And at its core, it's a whole blood cleansing solution. It's called hemoperfusion. It's not dialysis because in dialysis, that separates your blood from the other blood cells. So it's whole blood cleansing. And what they've done at Mutrex that's pretty amazing is they created a filter, a carbon filter that is hemocompatible and has the ability to be manufactured at scale and it can be targeting towards the bad molecules. So we're starting with taking out toxins from in the animal health space and we've treated, I don't know, more than 50 animals and only one uh, hasn't made it and the current standard of care might take two or three, four days of fluid therapy to get the toxins out of the dog. We can do it in about an hour and a half and they're out in the lobby wagging their tail with their owner. So it's pretty amazing. And then the goal is to gain sustainability in the animal health space, which does not require all the same steps as, as the FDA for into the human market and then move into the human market. And there are a lot of treatments that we believe we can develop with our platform. So, I mean, it's a very exciting product and it's uh, just right now at that inflection point of pivoting from R&D into commercialization. And right now we're working to raise the capital for commercialization. That's where we are. So it's at a kind of an important point of the process to make that happen. And what you're doing now is obviously very, very different from your prior roles. So what have you found that you have been able to carry over from those roles and what's just new and different? I would say, you know, at the end of the day, communication, communication, communication. Uh, it's a small team, but even small teams can talk past each other. So trying to keep the team, you know, aligned and then, you know, trying to make sure that our, how we're communicating to investors and potential investors is straightforward, easy, but thorough. And it's what they need to hear in terms of making their decisions for investment. I would say that there's a tried and true influence versus position is really important. And it's particularly in my case, as a new guy who doesn't have all the science, you know, I'm not going to top down and tell anybody what to do, not the scientists, not the manufacturing team. They know what they're doing more than I do. So my job is really to try to help improve while we're starting up this commercialization so that we have a culture of continual improvement as we really launch. Because we know that, you know, 
we've got a great plan, but every plan is going to change once the battle begins. And we've got to have the ability to pivot based on what we learn from the marketplace. So the, you know, some of those, those lessons are very similar to everything that I've done in the past. The area that I'm not as versed in is I don't have a, a medical or a medical science background. So learning the language is, is really like a, I think I, I try to learn a word a day, you know, because I've just never had experience with a lot of this. So there's been a lot of learning on the science side for me. But I think, you know, tenacity, keep pushing forward, not giving up and trying to stay hopeful and optimistic as we're trying to raise this money to commercialize and stay realistic with what we can do and how we can advance the business, even though we're undercapitalized at this point. How is it going overall? You know, we are poised and ready. I think the team is ready for scale, but we are a bit undercapitalized. And so we're taking baby steps just to keep the ball rolling until we can get a good tranche to kick it into gear. And so far, we have about 15 veterinarian clinics using our filters. They're, all the market signals are super positive. And we've got a base of the critical care hospitals, which is the growing fastest growing part of the animal health space right that is our target and the veterinarians are overworked the pet growth is extraordinary and the number of new vets is not you know the schools our education system for veterinarians is not growing but yet the number of pets and families is growing significantly so veterinarians are very overworked and so we think we have uh you know, a solution that will allow greater efficiency, greater efficacy, and a lower cost structure. So, you know, I think we got the right components. We just have to kind of connect a few dots to kind of pull off our commercialization plans. Yeah, I wish you well with that. How about for you? I mean, you were on a board and you got pressed into active duty service as the CEO. How are you thinking about this in terms of your your own plans? I was the right guy for the right price at that point in time because we didn't have a lot of money. You know, I've learned a lot and I enjoy it. And I'm here at the service of the board. You know, if there's a better fit down the road, then I'm all for that as well. But I do like it. I mean, I enjoy it. does have every business challenge coming at it at one time. And so that's fun if we can pull it all together. You know, I've given a commitment to stay for a while to see us through this. So that's what I'm doing. Awesome. So I'm conscious of time. Any final advice you want to share for people who are listening to our episode today? Uh, no, I would just, uh, as I as I think about people and, you know, moving on their career paths and trying to put a little bit of wisdom into that as they start, it's, there's a whole balancing act between skill sets and passions and finding the sweet spot. And sometimes your skill sets and your passions don't align for your career, but there's still a way to pursue some passions and leverage your skill sets to allow you to do that. They don't always have to be in the same spot. I think a lot of people get told, follow your passions. And more practical than that, that there are ways to do both and they don't always have to intersect 100%. If they can intersect 100%, more power to you. That's a good right. deal. Right. Well, and sometimes things that are your passions are best left as hobbies, right? And not necessarily what you do every yeah. day. Right. Yeah. And then try to figure out what you do every day, how to be passionate about it. <laughs> true, true. Well, and certainly, you know, you're a phenomenal example of just having the willpower to figure things out, right? You know, from those, probably yeah. those early days at Purdue to AT&T, you know, into business school and beyond. Yeah, you make mistakes and then you try to recover from them and then you fail forward. <laughs>
Exactly. Well, Jim, thanks for your time. I appreciate sure. it. As I said, All I right. wish you and Amutrix the best. I know there's a lot at stake for the company at this point. So, you, you know, best of luck in getting the financing that you need to, to continue to grow the company. All right. Thanks, Jared. All right. Take care. Take care. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.